0: Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's e-learning, offering online leadership courseware like AACN's award-winning Fundamental Skills for Nurse Managers, with information available at aacn.org forward slash manager course. Now, here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barden.
1: This is Connie Barden, and I'm really happy today to get to talk to a colleague who I actually have met before, Jonathan Bartels. Jonathan is a palliative care liaison nurse for the Palliative Care Consultation Service at the University of Virginia Health System, uh, based out of Charlottesville, Virginia. Jonathan, welcome.
2: Thank you, Connie. It's so good to talk to you again.
1: It's great to have you here. I really appreciate you carving time out to chat with us um we're going to talk in a little bit about how you and I met several years ago but before we do that tell us a little bit about yourself you have an interesting story of how you even got into nursing and your path in nursing and what do you want to share about that just to get us going
2: sure um i didn't go directly into nursing i'm i'm one of seven kids and of the seven kids my parents had Uh, four, five of them became doctors. So it was a a weird family where, you know, my brother was dissecting his meatloaf when he was, you know, 10 saying, I'm going to be a surgeon. I didn't have that same kind of uh, drive or knowledge of what the future would unfold for me. So I took a much more circuitous path to get to where I was. Um, I started off as an orderly in Buffalo, New York when I was 18. So you can say I grew up in healthcare, um, and that was about 35 years ago. And that's where I, I got my licks and and got my scars, and I learned a bunch about just taking care of people and then not being an 18-year-old punk um and dealing with a lot of different issues that I deal with today, which is death and dying and suffering and things like that. But it it was it was a learning curve. Um and I'll never forget I was working. Um, as an orderly and this was the height of HIV and you know back in the 80s Connie you remember that it was just uh, nursing was it was busy it was really busy back then as it is today but I remember one of my nurse colleagues looking at me and saying don't ever become a nurse and I'm 18 and I looked and I'm like all right got it she was fried she was burned out I'm like I said okay so I pursued psychology because someone said I was good at talking to people. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was my first degree. And when I got done with that, I didn't know what to do with it. So I ended up volunteering for a suicide hotline and I liked that for a bit, but it was, um, with the suicide hotline, you couldn't see your patients. So I couldn't determine if they were faking it or if they were real, because I didn't have all the information. And so it caused me a lot of distress because I thought maybe someone is calling and, and I make a mistake and they harm themselves. And so I did that just for a brief period of time. And tried to figure out what to do with my life. And I read some Joseph Campbell. I don't know if you know his work. Joseph Campbell uh, was a, a scholar in religious studies, but also was big on PBS. And his big quote was, follow your bliss. And so I decided to follow a path of going to graduate school in comparative religion and Eastern philosophy Cause I really, really enjoyed that kind of thought and that process and and that study itself. That was something that really was something that fed me. So I did that for a few years. And then an event happened in my life. My 36 uh, year old brother died of a glioblastoma and he had five kids under the age of 10. I was in grad school and I got called back to, at that time I was in Kalamazoo, Michigan um, doing grab work and then doing painting Victorian homes to, to make a living. And I had three kids and I got called back to Buffalo and helped take care of my brother when he died. And that caused a huge shift in me. Um, despite what that nurse had said to me back in the day, I realized my calling and that was to take care of other people as I took care of my brother, to offer him the same love and then offer others when I'm taking care of them, the same type of care so I can take care of anyone's brother, sister or mother. And so that's what really kind of drove me into nursing. So I made an about face turn and, and dropped out of grad school when I was just about to get my master's everyone's like don't do it and I said no i'm doing it and I, I joined a nursing program in buffalo New York at the to Uville college and it was an evening class program and I, I started pursuing nursing and then the rest is history
1: you've taken my breath away with just that amount of history. And there's a lot more history that we'll talk about in terms of you and the difference that you've made. I didn't know that part about you and about your brother. Thank you for sharing that. And um, wow. So he made a difference uh, even in his dying because it impacted you and you've impacted so many other people. Thank you for sharing that.
2: Yeah, he was my favorite brother. I don't tell my other brothers but, <laughs> but right. he, was, he he was he was definitely he was everyone's favorite yeah. and 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 if I could make something positive out of a negative that's what I did with that. Yeah.
1: We'll definitely not share the link to this podcast. <laughs> Well, listen, I got to know you, fortunately, back in briefly. And in 2018, um, when AACN gave you one of its biggest awards, you know, we have all kinds of awards that we give, but our visionary awards are the highest level awards that we give. And you received that in 2018, received our Pioneering Spirit Award. And it was specifically related to the work you had spearheaded there at UVA around the pause. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And then who knows what we'll get into after that? I think folks would love to hear about
2: that work. Sure. I was so honored to to even be considered that. Uh, You know, I I felt like an imposter um, getting that award. And I still do today hearing about it. It seems like it wasn't real, but it really was. Um, And it was all based on some of the work I did on, on this practice called the pause and the pause is a practice that I implemented um, after doing a retreat with my dear friend, uh, Dory Fontaine, uh, with another person who has become a dear friend, and that is Roshi Joan Halifax, um, who has a course called Being with Dying. And it was a, it was a real amazing course. And it was a course on Death and dying, and in resiliency work within that, and also healing yourself after doing that kind of work. And it was a, it was an amazing retreat, seven eight day retreat called Being with Dying. And after it was done, uh, Roshi Joan Halifax, who is if anyone doesn't know her work, should check it out. Um, she's got a lot of really good books and has done a lot of work on compassion and on on healthcare. But she gave us a mandate when we were done. She said, when you go back to your healthcare institution, you got to not only get this healing that you received here, but make a difference, make an impact in the place you go back to. And so I was in this course with a bunch of people that were hospice or palliative care, and I was the only one who was in the ER. And so I went back and I'm like, how do I bring this stuff like this mindfulness or or self-care or healing um, into an environment like the ER? And one day I noted uh, after a patient died, a chaplain stopped the room and she said, hey, could we stop? And then she did a Judeo-Christian prayer. And I was I was kind of shocked. I was like, man, that took a lot of of." fortitude to stand up and do that. And I, I said, I like the concept, but I'm not a Judeo-Christian kind of guy. How can and I know that not everyone comes from the same traditions? How can I do this in a way that honors but doesn't detract? And so I used a lot of my my studies in graduate school um, on religion and on on practices of ritual practices. And I decided I would change up what the chaplain did the next time someone died. And I was doing it for myself, really. It was a selfish act, but it also had an intent to help people. So the next time we had a death, I stopped the room after the death was called. And I said, hey, you guys, can we take a moment? Can we just take a moment to honor this person in this bed? Could we honor the life that was lived? Could we honor the fact that they were loved and they loved other human beings? And could we also just take a moment to honor in our own ways the care we provided and the care provided by those before us? And could we do that in silence and in whatever way gives you meaning? And so we did that. And I didn't think anything of it and this this resident came up to me and she's like dude that was awesome and i'm like well thank you but that was the beginning of what we what i coined the pause um and i remember people trying to have me change that name and i'm like no that's what this is called this is called the pause um they wanted to change because the pause is already being implemented in pre and post procedures. And they're like, oh, that'll get confusing. And I said, no, this is what it is. I don't want to call it the ritual. I don't want to call it anything else, but this is what it is, the pause. And so that's where it started. And it started with one patient. And now it's become both nationally used in hospitals across the country. And it's also on seven continents around the world, meaning every continent which is really, really cool. And it was spread by people who heard my story, who shared my story, who continued to hear and share. Um, and and people take it on and they they apply it to themselves and they it becomes their pause. It's not the Jonathan Bartels pause, it's your pause, your practice, your ritual. And yeah. I, I thought it was a Captain Obvious moment and I didn't do much with it until people pushed me. And they're like, dude, This is not a Captain Obvious moment. And I said, for some of us, it is. For some of us around the country, as nurses, we do stop and honor patients. But we just didn't formally call it anything. Or we did it in our own way, in a different way. But, you know, so that's where it all kind of got started.
1: Such a magnificent story. It takes me right back to, okay, you may not understand why you got an award called pioneering spirit. But that is a pioneering spirit and courageous spirit that it took for you to do that that first time and sounds like the feedback that you got just let you know it's the perfect thing and we're going to talk a little bit more about i want to talk a little bit about some of the logistics of it if people are thinking oh my gosh that sounds amazing so if someone wants to begin this in their place their unit what are some of the um Logistics like can anybody on the team do the pause? Does it need to be the leader of the team? Does it have to be a nurse? Does it have to like what are some of the logistics that you tell people if they want to get started with this?
2: There are no rules. And that's what I love about nurses and medical people, because they ask, how do we do it and do it correctly? Tell us the protocol. Exactly. And I love that you say, tell us the protocol, because it's not. And that's the first thing I would tell you is do not protocolize this, because that's like saying you're all going to be happy. You should smile and be friggin' happy, because that's what we're protocolizing today. No, don't do that. You, right. This is an invitation. And so what you do as a practitioner is simply adopt it as your own practice. Um, there's a website that I created called the pause me um and that's some place people can go to just to see logistics that's all self-funded i've never gotten any money from anyone it's I, I did that on purpose so we didn't have it called the cleveland clinic pause or you know the the ucla pause it's yeah. it's the pause there's also an app you can get called the pause and it has like five different languages. I don't know if you need the app, but what I find about the app is that it's it's cool because it it has different languages that you can show a family that say speaks Parsi. And you can show them this is what we're going to do. Is that OK? And they read it and then they say yes. So right now we're up to five or six languages. And Farsi, I think Italian, Polish, Spanish are all written in there. But it's it's the practice is really simple. It's just doing it, starting it and doing it. You can formally implement it in your institutions simply by advertising it and instructing people and showing them what, what it is um, and then inviting them to to apply it in their own practices. Um, VCU uh, out here in Virginia did it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, They had me come out and speak and then they used a lot of the lessons they got from from me speaking for them to, to implement. But a lot of institutions around the country have simply just adopted it and introduced it. And anyone on the team can do it. You could have a housekeeper do it. You could have a respiratory therapist do it. It doesn't matter.
1: That sounds amazing. Almost too good to be true in its simplicity, which is probably why it's all over the country and all over the world. Exactly right. Let's talk about there's always balance in things. Are there any any pitfalls or anything people should be careful about? Or what if someone's uncomfortable? Or
2: The pitfalls are, are several since we've done this for years. Um, one of them is I always ask permission. Would it be okay if we took a moment, if a family's in there, in front of the family, say, could we take a moment to honor your loved one? Would that be okay? And then, you know, if they say yes, then we do it. If they say no, then of course we don't do it. You can go out in the hallway and do a pause for them out in the hallway. You don't have to do it in the room. Yeah. Um, The other thing is language. Um, I find, you know, as I said in the beginning, a chaplain had done it and used, you know, words from her own um, tradition. And those were much more of a uh, Judeo-Christian kind of word set. Um, I try to avoid using language that's religious, um, and there's a reason. It's not that I disdain others' religions. What I want to do is be as open as I can in my verbiage so that both a Muslim, a Jew, an atheist, a Wiccan, a Buddhist, they can all be in the same room and honor that patient yeah. in their own way in silence and they're all doing the same thing but if we start to imply our own religious language you can almost do a religious assault and that's never ever an intent from anyone and i know it's not but if you're using words say say if you're muslim and you're using your words over a christian patient that family might get real, real upset by that. Or if you're Christian and you're doing it over a Jewish patient, that might make them upset. So I really try to use a much more humanistic language um, and a much more secular language without negating the importance of religion to that individual, because that silence, that's where you can do your religion. If you're Christian, you can, you can say your prayers to Jesus. If you're Muslim, you can, you know, say your prayer to Allah, um, but you're not, implementing or or imposing on a family in a way that could harm them and now I, I stress that often it, it's important because i've heard horror stories where that wasn't done and you know the road to hell is, is paved by many of those horror stories
1: yeah yeah, yeah. good intentions right exactly Indeed. so yeah i can see that would take some conversation people learning together how's the best most neutral, so to speak, thing, this is not a religious thing. would you say it's more of a spiritual I would say it's a religious yeah. thing
2: for the yeah. individual
1: for the individual um, yeah.
2: but the languaging is not a religious language because we live in a multicultural universe, man, and in a multicultural uh, country, United States, that's what makes us awesome is all the different cultures that come together. Yeah. So we don't want to block any one culture out when we're doing this, yes,
1: yeah. total inclusion. I got it. Yeah, it takes some thought and some some learning, I think, from others, what works and what doesn't work. Anything else, any other, like what if there's somebody who thinks, ah, this is kind of bunk, I don't want to do this. What do we do with
2: them? That's why the invitation's there. I often say, if you don't want to do it, or they say, I can't do it, the silent moment is only about a minute And 30 seconds for surgeons, a minute for hospitalists and medicine (laughs) providers, you know, because of the attention span, but it's, it's not that long as you know, and I know there are people out there that have been harmed in our health system so much and been exposed by so much pain and suffering that even stopping for a minute will make them break down and cry. I would suggest don't make anyone do it invite them if they want to, but if they say, I can't do that, by all means, follow up and just say, are you okay? You know, see if they need further support or wants. And if they don't, that's fine. But if they do, and they just don't want to say things in front of everyone else, then you have the opportunity to help heal your colleague by, by getting them more support, you know, going to EAP or doing some post-traumatic stress work and, and things like that. Sure.
1: Sure. I mean, post codes and and attempting to save people oftentimes, which this could happen post code or just when someone has died a natural death, but it often is a very emotional time, not just for families, but for caregivers as well. So they may not be willing to be vulnerable with their colleagues at that point in time. And yeah, I totally get that.
2: You know, as well as I like the death of a child Yes. or that scream from a family member that still echoes to this day. If you stop and think about it, yeah, maybe too much for you at that moment to stop and hold that space. But that's also an indication that we got to seek help when we need it. Yeah. You know, and it's, I couldn't do this work for 25 years or over 35 years without bumping my proverbial brain against the wall and, and, and burning out a little bit, but knowing those signs is so important.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Something you mentioned already with Roshi Joan Halifax, and also uh, more recently, you've been involved with a lot of Compassionate Care Retreats. What's that work? Uh, Tell us about that. I don't even know where to start with my questions on that. What are you doing around Compassionate Care Retreat?
2: I've been doing it for about 11 or 12 years. And we have an initiative at the University of Virginia that that, uh, my dear friend, Dory Fontaine, uh through through the donations of another friend Miss Kluge started this compassionate care initiative and what I was slated to do was I, I trained with a lot of different people in 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 running these retreats and these retreats are dedicated to self-care and compassion. If you've ever for those that are listening that are in the military People have likened my retreats to R&R after being deployed. Um, it's a seven hour or six hour retreat. Um, you're taken off site, off campus, and we just help you help me help you take care of yourself. We offer what what my colleague and I like to call uh, all you can eat platter. These offerings are all different practices. Um, that we introduce throughout the day. And we often say, look, if you don't like it, that's fine. You're only going to do it once. You don't have to do it again. But if it's something we introduce to you and you like then you have an opportunity to pursue more of that same practice when you leave here as a form of self-care. And so we offer things like meditation. We offer things like guided meditation and loving kindness uh, meditations. We offer yoga. Um, We offer communication, working with communication skills. We go out and walk in the woods or walk outside in nature. Um, we do activities uh, that, that that elicit laughter and joy. We allow people the opportunity to rest and also re-explore and find out that wisdom that their grandmother told them a long time ago that they forgot, which is how to heal themselves. Mm. And usually what we're trying to do is unearth all those lessons your grandma taught you from back in the day. I want to say we've done for over a thousand people and it was started off with mostly just nursing students in their curriculum that when they get trained in nursing school, they get to go on this retreat with us at least once in their four years. And it really tells them the importance of self-care before they actually go in and start to get bumped and grinded by the work we do, our work is intense, even on a good day, even without COVID, our right. work sucks sometimes, you yeah. know, it really, yeah. really does. It's intense. And so how do you do that work while healing yourself is really our focus. And um, I've done it for physicians. In fact, the medical school residents or medical school students heard about our retreats. They find their own funding. Because the medical school has not recognized that this is important, but mm. their students have, and now they come up with their own funding, and I run a retreat for them once a year, and that was done by word of mouth. It's wild, you know, the fact that that it means so much to them. And, you know. Absolutely,
1: you know, um, take a minute to just give a nod and a virtual hug to your colleague and mine, Dori Fontaine. You mentioned her a couple of times, who at the time I think was dean at University of Virginia School of Nursing. And that's how this thing got such solid footing there at UVA is under her leadership. She's quite a mentor to many in terms of these retreats. What if someone listening wants to see about starting these things in their own institution? Does it take a big budget? Does it take a whole department? How complicated
2: is all this? The complications are simply often in logistics, finding the area that you can do the retreat in. Also recruiting talent. You have to recognize who has what talent and what they can do. Um, I've done some consulting work with uh, Emory and gone and told them about the retreats and the do's and don'ts and falls. So um, that's available. Um, There's also, I, I think, a talent logistics and the finances really to run a retreat, total cost is not that much. If it's going to help retain your staff, if you have an enlightened administration, they'll look at that and say, well, we're just dropping, you know, $4,000 for this retreat, but look, we're retaining our staff and saving hundreds and thousands of dollars in retention of our staff, we've got to think outside the box. It's And what I've always felt is that institutions should be looking at things like this. And it came to me after looking at Apple and Google when they started, they had a very different model on how to retain their staff. And part of it was really taking care of them, making it worse staying in an institution that cares about you. Look, I remember when I started as an orderly, I was working in a Catholic hospital in Buffalo, New York, and the nuns every year gave us a turkey. And I thought, dude, this is awesome. I get a turkey. I love these ladies. I love (laughs) these nuns. And I thought, why not put the treat back in retreat and offer that to people? And so that's really where this inception of this concept came from was putting the treat back into retreat and offering that up it's doable it doesn't cost that much money and if it can retain 10 nurses then you've you've already paid for yourself a lot times over
1: that's a a pretty obvious return on investment right no doubt no doubt not even 10 a handful of nurses or medical students Yeah, I think it speaks for itself when you say the medical students themselves asked for this, found the money and want to do this because they realize there's such a push nationally for taking care of clinicians, all kinds of clinicians. And that's a very telling story.
2: And I know you cannot yoga away the crap that we go through and you cannot mindfully breathe away the stuff we go through. Right. But you can find ways to care for yourself. I don't like the word resilience, especially after COVID, because it's it's a triggering word to me as a nurse. You're going to tell me I got to carry more weight. I got to be stronger. No, uh uh-uh. but I do think we should always take care of ourselves Mm -hmm. while we're taking care of other people. And that's why I've changed the language on that. Um, Before COVID, I did call it resiliency and compassion, but after COVID, I stopped that word because that just, it wasn't authentic enough and it wasn't really capturing what I wanted to really call this practice.
1: Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned COVID a couple of times and you and I are talking now in the fall of uh, 2022, we've been through a couple of years, two, three years of COVID, so in the palliative care realm and all of this work that you do, uh, Might be a crazy question, but how has your work been impacted by this pandemic? I cannot even imagine.
2: Like everyone else around the country and around the world, it's changed how we approach um, patients and end of life. The bedside nurses needed a lot more support because Mm -hmm. they were alone and they became the hands that held, they became the arms that hugged they became the eyes that saw for the families that could not be there for the patients. Yes, That's where my, uh, my focus has, has shifted a little bit in terms of how do I support my nursing staff or my staff in general while they're taking care of people who are dying? And what is it that I need to support them with and, and, and ask them what they need and, and offer them? Um, It's been a huge change. I'm speaking to a a bunch of nurses, so I really don't have to explicate that further because everyone's done it and no one could go in. Even Hawks had to, you know, and these are hospital secretaries were the gatekeepers for administration's decision not to let families in, they got brutalized over the phone because families were just distraught that they couldn't go see their loved ones we're still going to see repercussions from this for years and years to come. We didn't have the amount of deaths that they had in New York or in Italy. And thank God we didn't. But we did have our fair share of deaths. And it's beyond politics, beyond, beyond whatever anyone holds. Death and dying is really, really intense. And when you put restrictions on it to that degree, I don't care who you are, it's going to harm you, and it did harm a lot of people, including our nursing staff.
1: Yes, we're going to need to keep talking about that and keep, yeah, you know, like your concept, let's talk less about being resilient, more about just taking care of ourselves and each other. Um, and it's going to take a while.
2: This wasn't just COVID. We've been getting screwed for a long time, and COVID woke us up. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't mean to to be blunt, but it's true.
1: There were frailties in the system that just got blown wide open
2: absolutely. that's very political <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> I wish I was more eloquent,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but we're saying the same thing, Jonathan. It brings me so much joy to talk to you i I can't thank you enough for being here and sharing so authentically you know i I take notes when I was talking to you and It's funny, I was underlining things, and the number one word that I see on my paper here is care. You started talking about when you were 18, learning to care as an orderly, and taking care of your brother. And what you said, I don't even know if you said this, I knew that I wanted to care for others with the same love that I cared for my own brother. Can you imagine? And you have built your practice, your whole nursing career on this. It just takes my breath away. So I don't need to recap everything you taught us about the pause. People can hear that, how to do it. I really just want to, again, thank you for all the care and love that you provide and for being the pioneering spirit that you are. And thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, let's, Let's close with, why don't you wrap up what gives you hope? We've all been through just a mess here. What gives you hope as you look around nursing and healthcare and towards the future?
2: I've been blown away um, by running retreats for uh, the School of Nursing over the last couple of years um, with the new nurses that are coming in because I've, I've tried to be as authentic as I am here. And I've tried to really, it's hard to, it's kind of like pointing at a map when you've never walked in the train. And so in my retreats, I try to point at that map to here's a pitfall, here's here's a spot where you're gonna have difficulty. Here's, you know, here's another spot where you, you may make a medical error, but be kind to yourself when you do that. All those little spots. What gives me hope is that this new generation, I see some awesome, awesome humans coming into healthcare to take care of me, to take care of you, to take care of people who are ill. I get inspired and goosebumps when I think about some of, some of the real soldiers that are coming in to take our places um, as we old guards start to step away. And I want them all to, to have, you know, I do say caring, but I also, I think the other word would be compassion. And compassion includes caring. And what compassion does is you have to have compassion for your patients. And you also have to have compassion for yourself. And if you don't do both, then you're just not going to be able to sustain. Um, and, And you may have to pick yourself up again when you fall. And sometimes we all have to. And I just want people to know we've all been there. We've all gone through it. We've all been hurt. And there's a way out and it's called through as long as we can, we can do it with compassion and with real loving kindness towards ourselves.
1: Beautiful. To one of my favorite, awesome humans, Jonathan Bartels. Thank you oh, so thank much you, for Connie. being here today. Great. Thank to you, love.
2: you. Great talking to you too.
0: Thank you for listening to the American association of critical care nurses, leadership podcast, Proudly sponsored by AACN's award-winning Fundamental Skills for Nurse Managers. With information available at aacn.org forward slash manager course. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.